Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Fideli from Aversa, Italy. But in 1955, she gave birth to the heaviest baby born on record. Are you ready for this? A baby, bo- a baby boy weighing 22 pounds, 8 ounces. In 2012, a Polish woman experienced the longest labor ever recorded. Are you ready for this? 75 days. Some of you are hoping I'd say 75 hours because that would be long enough. It was 75 days. She went into labor at just 21 weeks. And doctors were unable to completely suppress her contractions, but they were able to ease them enough to allow the baby she was carrying to remain in utero and develop until she was able to deliver a healthy baby girl and a healthy baby boy 75 days later. Now, the youngest premature baby to survive was James Elgin Gill, who was born in Canada in 1987, was born at just 21 weeks and five days. So full term is 39 weeks. And so this premature baby was born at 21 weeks and five days, but survived, was just 1.1 pounds when he was born. But that is not the lightest baby ever to be born on record. That distinction belongs to Amelie Taylor, who was born in Florida at 21 weeks and six days, just one day longer than James Elgin Gill, but she weighed only 10 ounces when she was born. And as far as I could tell, she is growing up as a healthy girl in Florida today, being born at just 10 ounces. Now, these are all remarkable births. And as important and heartwarming and worth celebrating as all of these births are, None of us are singing carols in their honor, and the year on our calendar is not calculated by their entrance into the world. But there is a baby that was born, that we mark time by, and whose birth is celebrated in song all across the globe. It's actually the most remarkable and extraordinary of all births, and that's the birth of a baby boy born in Bethlehem, whose name is Jesus. And so this morning we are celebrating the birth of Jesus and in order to do that we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, the second chapter, the first 14 verses to hear what the Bible has to tell us about the birth of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you can open them to Luke chapter 2. Again, we're going to be reading the first 14 verses. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to locate a paperback Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you. You can look in that Bible and find our passage on page 500. If you do not own a Bible, we would love for you to take that Bible with you. So consider that a gift of ours. Take that home with you if you don't own a Bible. But the reading is on page 500. Again, Luke chapter 2 this morning, the first 14 verses. If you're able, let's stand for the reading of God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, And laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Well, there are at least three important things to notice about the birth of Jesus in this account in Luke chapter 2. And the first of those things to notice is that the birth of Jesus is a historical birth. We see this in verses 1 through 5. The birth of Jesus is a historical birth. Notice that Luke's account does not begin with the words, once upon a time, or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, because the birth of Jesus is not a fable. It's not a fictional tale. It occurs in the context of history. It's a historical birth. And that's why we encounter known historical events and historical places in Luke's account that serve to locate the birth of Jesus in a specific place and a specific time in history. For example, we read of this decree that goes out, this known census in history that goes out at the time that Jesus was born in the known Roman Empire, this empire that was so vast that Luke says that all the world had to go out and be registered. We also read of places like Syria, a place, a country that's still in the news today. We read of places like Galilee and Nazareth and Bethlehem, cities that you can still actually go and visit today. In the Middle East, this is a picture of modern-day Nazareth. This is what modern-day Bethlehem looks like. Perhaps some of you have actually traveled to these real cities that have existed. They exist today, and they existed in history. And we read of known historical people as well. This known governor of Syria, of Syria at the time, Quirinius. We read of him in this account, and we read of Caesar Augustus, the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, who served as the emperor of the Roman Empire from 27 B.C., until his death in 14 AD. Notice those are dates within which Jesus is born, 27 BC to AD 14. And notice also those are dates that are designated as such by the birth of Jesus. <laughs> 27 years before Christ and then the 14th year in the year of our Lord, AD, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Time is marked by his entrance into the world. But it would appear that the birth of Jesus unfolds in history the way it does according to this sovereign and authoritative decree of Caesar Augustus who calls for this census, most probably for the purposes of taxation and to secure tribute from the people in the empire, requiring everybody in the empire to return to their place of birth in order to be registered. And so Joseph has to go to Bethlehem from Nazareth in order to be registered in Bethlehem, his hometown. And Mary, his betrothed, goes with him. Maybe because she had to be registered in Bethlehem as well, or maybe simply because he didn't want to leave her behind in Nazareth when she was so close to delivering the child that she was carrying. But in any event, Joseph and Mary have to take this trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which was not the easiest of trips. It was lengthy, it was hilly, it, it, it required an increase in elevation from the northern part to the southern part of Israel. And that's why we read in verse 4, 
that Joseph went up from Galilee. If you look at it on a map, they're actually going down from the north to the south, from Galilee to Judea. But in elevation, it's going up from Galilee, Nazareth to Bethlehem. And so the journey uh, was not an easy one. Uh, It would have required days over hilly terrain, and it certainly was not an easy trip for someone that late in pregnancy to make. But there's another reason that this journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem would have been difficult and painful. And it's because it would have served as a reminder to the Israelites that though they dwelt in their own land, they were under the authority of a pagan king who seemed able to move them around like pawns whenever he wished. But while it may have seemed that this king was able to move them around like pawns, it was not so. Because the truth is that Caesar Augustus is actually a pawn in the hands of Israel's God. Because you see, God is the one who's orchestrating all of these events, bring about his purposes. The birth of Jesus happens in history the way it happens, not because of the decree of Caesar Augustus. It happens because of the decree of God who arranges these events to bring about the fulfillment of his word that was spoken 700 years earlier by the prophet Micah. We read about that in the book of Micah in chapter 5, verse 2, where we read that Israel's king, their true king, the Messiah, not Caesar Augustus, was to be born like David before him in the city of Bethlehem. But how was God going to get a man who was living in Nazareth to travel with his wife to Bethlehem in order to give birth to a baby there? Well, he would do it by moving and directing and controlling earthly powers, even the strongest of political powers in the day at that time, Caesar Augustus, moving him, directing him, guiding him by his sovereign hand in order to bring about the fulfillment of his word and carrying out his purposes. There's something encouraging for us to remember here. That it's good for us to remember, especially in times like these, that all political power, all world leaders, all national elections transpire under the sovereign hand of our wise and good God. He is still orchestrating history as the one who rules over all things. And it's good for us also to remember as we see these difficulties and inconveniences and interruptions in the lives of Joseph and Mary, It may not have made a lot of sense to them at the time, but God was carrying out his good purposes for them. And so when we see this, we can be encouraged that in the midst of our challenges, in the midst of our difficulties and our trials and our interruptions and our inconveniences, especially all of those that we've experienced this year in 2020, that all of those are happening under the sovereign hand of the Lord who's carrying out his purposes in our lives and in history. And we can be encouraged by that. And of course, in this journey that Mary and Joseph are taking from Nazareth to Bethlehem, God is carrying out his greatest purpose in all of history, and that is for the redemption of his people. In the historical birth of Jesus, God is carrying out his greatest purpose, the redemption of his people. But we can say even more than this. We need to say even more than this, because in the historical birth of Jesus, he's not only carrying out his purposes, God himself, the God of history, is stepping into the world that he had made. As R.C. Sproul reminds us, he says, what we celebrate at Christmas is not so much the birth of a baby, but the incarnation of God himself. So on this Communion Sunday, as surely as you can behold with your eyes, touch with your hands the elements of this sacrament, the bread and the cup, you can be assured 
that God himself wrapped himself in human flesh and then was wrapped in swaddling cloths and he was born in history, embodied, incarnate in our space and time in order to dwell with us and to redeem us. And that's what we're celebrating Christmas. But of course, it would have been hard to realize that this is what was happening at the time because the birth of Jesus is also a humble birth. It's a humble birth. And we see this in verses six and seven. God steps into the world in obscurity and loneliness. Under ordinary circumstances within a culture that placed a high premium on hospitality, when Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem, they would have been afforded some kind of guest room to stay in whether the guest room of a family member, which remember, Joseph was from Bethlehem, so he may have had family there that would welcome them into his home, or at the very minimum, some kind of guest room of a stranger, or some kind of lodging. But we read in verse seven that Bethlehem was so crowded at the time that there was no place for them in the inn. No place for them in the inn. Now we shouldn't read this word inn and think of our own holiday in like it's just some kind of ancient Near East version of this large structure with rooms upon rooms of, of vacancy that travelers could, could, could lodge when they were moving through towns. The ancient Near East didn't operate that way. In fact, Luke uses the same word that's translated in in chapter 2 later in the gospel. In chapter 22 verse 11 where it refers to the room that was to be prepared for Jesus and his disciples to eat the Passover, what would be the last supper. And so it's likely that this no room for them in the inn is still referring to some kind of room attached to a home that would have been extended to them in hospitality. But it wasn't. Now, we don't get a lot of details, actually, about the birth of Christ in the Gospels. It's difficult for us to reconstruct everything because we don't have a ton of details, but also it's difficult for us to reconstruct what happened exactly in the birth of Christ in great detail because we're removed from it. We're removed from it culturally and we're removed from it in 2,000 years. And because of this, because there's little detail in the scripture that's given and we're removed from it in culture and in time, we have a tendency to adopt a lot of unbiblical assumptions and to allow a lot of imagination to creep into our minds when we think about the biblical story, which is not, again, necessarily in the Bible. I just have a few examples to illustrate that. A few questions to ask. What animal did Mary ride as she entered into Bethlehem before giving birth to Jesus? Does anybody know? The Bible doesn't say she rode any animal into Bethlehem. <laughs> she might have. She might not have. The Bible just doesn't say. Well, how, how many animals and what specific kinds of animals were present there in the stable where Jesus was born? Well, the Bible actually doesn't say that Jesus was born in a stable. Many scholars believe that Jesus was born in a cave. But the Bible actually doesn't say he was born in a stable or a cave. And it doesn't say anything about specific animals being present at his birth, just the presence of a manger. That's the only detail you get. So we don't know. And we could ask this question too. How many wise men visited Jesus on the night that he was born? Well, the wise men actually arrived probably much later than this evening that he was born in Bethlehem. And the Bible doesn't say how many wise men there were. We know there was more than one because it's plural. So maybe there was two, maybe there was three, maybe there was 15. The Bible doesn't say. We don't get a lot of detail to be able to fill in this whole picture of what happened the night Jesus 
was born. And there's something actually instructive in this for us. As one writer says, he puts it this way. He says the simplicity and brevity of this account uh, can be viewed as testimony to its inspiration and divine origin. For such accounts would normally be embellished. Its reserved sobriety forms a sharp contrast to all legendary versions of later times. You don't get embellishment here in the Gospels. I mean, if you just look at the verse, when God enters into the world, Luke gives it one verse. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. There it is. No embellishment. You don't get legendary features to that. But what Luke's account does make plain is that God entered our world, not in a king's palace, not in a royal castle, not in, or, in an ornate mansion, but through a humble birth. We know that Jesus was placed in a manger for his crib. A feeding trough for animals was where he was placed after he was born. And so he leaves this glorious throne from on, on high. The second person of the Trinity, dwelling in eternal glory, descends, steps into our world, and is placed in a feeding trough for animals. Behold the humility here of the birth of Jesus, the infinite one as an infant. The eternal one is born the almighty governor of the universe having to learn to walk, the omnipotent ruler of the stars in weakness, the bread of life hungering, the source of living water thirsting, and the one who is of himself absolute purity stepping into pollution. The entrance was anything but affluent and clean and prosperous and pampered and sheltered. The entrance was messy it was messy. So be encouraged that Jesus didn't come to keep the mess of the world at arm's length. From the very beginning, he stepped right into the midst of the filth and the clutter and the stench and the blood and the sweat and the tears and the pain and the trouble of this world in sin and error pining in order to lift us up out of it. And so be encouraged that he's not keeping your mess at arm's length either. Your hang-ups, your screw-ups, your disorders, your dirty habits, your shame and your guilt that cling to you are not keeping him away. Jesus came into the world to pursue and rescue people who don't have their act together. In fact, in his love, he was willing to get his hands and his feet really dirty in the process of cleaning things up. In fact, we should say it this way. In love, he was willing to get his hands and his feet bloody in the work of redemption as the sacrament of the Lord's Supper again bears witness to that fact. But we should also remember, while we can be encouraged, we can be challenged as well, that the Apostle Paul tells us to imitate this humility of Jesus in Philippians chapter two, to take the light of Jesus into a dark and messy world to shine that light. We're called to do that. And yet, for some reason, we're struck by this thought that somehow we're going to escape the mess and trouble of this world. And that somehow we're entitled to a better and more hospitable reception than Jesus received when he entered. But we're not. 
Notice it wasn't only Jesus who wasn't afforded the reception that would have been typical. It was those with him. We know what it says. There was no place for them in the end. Not just for Jesus, no place for Mary and Joseph. So listen, if you're associated with Jesus, don't assume that the world is going to make room for you. Don't assume that your Christian views and convictions are going to be warmly welcomed and pleasantly accepted in the midst of the world. If Jesus, our Savior, was rejected, why are we expecting better treatment? The truth is, if we're going to remain faithful to God and his kingdom mission of caring for the poor and the underprivileged, of fighting for justice, of defending the rights of the unborn, and upholding biblical views of marriage, sexuality, and gender in today's world, then we better be prepared to exercise some humble courage, and we better be prepared to experience being dismissed, rejected, and persecuted like our Savior was. Because if we're not prepared for that, we're going to prove unfaithful. If we feel entitled to some kind of acceptance and good treatment in the world because of our Christianity, we're deluded. The truth is we are called to humbly take the light of Christ into dark places. And that's going to be messy. That's going to be hard. And the darkness is going to push back. It's going to kick back and it might hurt. Well, where's the Christmas cheer in that? That might sound a little depressing. But we have to remember that the light of Jesus is stronger than the darkness of the world. That his life is stronger than sin and evil. And so there's hope, which is the third thing we can look at. The birth of Jesus is a hopeful birth. We see this in verses 8 through 14. Specifically, we read in verses 8 through 11 about the only people who appear to be those who were told about what was occurring in Bethlehem that night. We read it in these verses right here. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And so this angel is not sent to powerful princes or to educated rabbis or to wealthy business owners. This angel is sent to shepherds. They are the ones who are given a front row seat when God enters into the world with God incarnate. They are the ones who are called. Shepherds were clearly one of the lower classes in society at that time. And some even allege that like women, they were so marginalized and dismissed that they were debarred from even giving testimony in courts at that time. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, that in Israel they were barred from giving testimony in court. We have to remember that shepherds play a prominent role throughout the Old Testament. I mean, David, their king, was a shepherd boy. So I don't know if it sunk that low, but just, just imagine if that's true, if they were seen as that low of people, that the first witnesses to the incarnation were shepherds and the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. Nobody's making that up. No one makes that story up and it reminds us of this precious truth that Jesus came for the lowly and he pursues those that the world often rejects. But the shepherds were not encouraged by that when the angel appears to them. They are filled with great fear and understandably so because they are confronted with the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord shone around them and sinners cannot bear the weight of the glory of the Lord. They cannot bear to stand in the presence of this great glory. 
Because let's remember this, that what all of us need is not ultimately a deliverer who rescues us from the world's scorn. That's not what we need ultimate rescue from. What we need ultimate rescue from is the Father's wrath. A Father's wrath resting upon those who deserve to be rejected because of our lack of righteousness and our lack of holiness and our rebellion before a holy and righteous God and the weight of his glory. And so this fear that the shepherds experience on this occasion is justified and it's appropriate. We see it actually again and again in scripture when people are confronted with the Lord and his glory. And yet, as justifiable and appropriate as this fear is, it is cast out by God's grace. God comes in grace. And we read this in the words of the angel in verses 10 and 11. The angel said to these shepherds, fear not. This is not a message of fear. Don't be afraid. There's a reason. For behold, I bring you good news, not of great fear, but of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you, even you lowly shepherds, unto you, sinful, rebellious people, is born this day in the city of David, not a judge to condemn, not a destroyer to avenge, but a savior, the Christ, the Messiah, who is the Lord. The good news is that God didn't come to condemn us. Jesus comes as a savior to rescue us from the condemnation and wrath and punishment that our sins deserve. And how does he do that? He does that by being born of a woman, by becoming a man, and by living as a man, as our representative, as the second Adam who succeeds where Adam failed, fulfilling every righteous requirement of the law on our behalf, and then dying an atoning death as our substitute, suffering the Father's wrath in our place, and then being raised from the dead so that we might have the hope of everlasting life. It's through the rejection of Jesus that we are accepted by our Heavenly Father, and it's through his death that we have the hope of everlasting life. So when we're lowly enough, we take our place as a sinful people, acknowledging our need for grace and grace alone for our salvation, when we humble ourselves, and when we're lowly enough to receive him in faith, we can know that he will lift us up. Even when we receive of him by faith in the elements of the sacrament, We can have the assurance that this hope of life is ours through his death. Through his birth, we're given the hope of new birth into an everlasting kingdom of peace and righteousness. Not a kingdom like the Roman Empire. For all the glory and pomp that the empire had, it's gone. It's gone. And for all of the pomp and glory that Caesar Augustus had, he is no more. But as Christians... We are receiving a kingdom, not building it, not meriting it by what we do, but we're receiving a kingdom by God's grace that cannot be shaken. And the reason we're receiving that kingdom by grace is all because of this. For unto us a child is born in the city of David on the very first Christmas, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the Lord of lords and the King of kings and the source of all of our hope. And so right this morning to be celebrating the birth of Jesus, a historical birth, a humble birth, and a hopeful birth. In fact, it's the most extraordinary and remarkable of all births because it's not just the birth of a man. It's not the birth of a man who became a God. It's the birth of God who became a man for us and for our salvation. 
And that is a birth worthy of marking our time by in history. It's worthy of calculating all history by. And that's a birth worthy of singing about. In fact, that's where our passage ends, right? In verses 13 and 14, we read these words. That a multitude of the heavenly hosts suddenly appeared, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So this heavenly choir is singing the original version of Gloria in Excelsis Deo, which is just a Latin phrase, which means glory in the highest to God. That's what we're singing when we sing that, but this multitude of hosts sings the original version. We are wise to sing the cover version because for all of the reasons that the angels had to praise God and sing unto him at the birth of Jesus, we have more because Jesus wasn't born to redeem the angels. He was born for us as an expression of his love for us. So let's join that heavenly chorus and sing glory to God in the highest. We're gonna do that in just a second, but let's close in prayer. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you that you have sent your son Jesus to rescue us, that you entered into history in time and space in humility, that you might bear our sins that you might lift us up to glory. And Lord, it's that wonderful good news, it's that promise of glory that compels us to sing glory to you in the highest, for we offer it in the name of Jesus our Savior, born on Christmas Day, in his name, amen.